From News 10 in Sacramento, this is the Capital Connection podcast for Friday, January 10th, 2014, the first one of 2014. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> you knew that was your line. Good. Uh, I'm John Myers, political editor at News 10, Anthony York, political writer at the Los Angeles Times. Back with me again uh, for the first podcast of 2014. We have been away for a little while, holidays, downtime, um, you know, there's an excuse around every corner, be as may. Anyone who's listening, you're good enough to come back and, and listen to, to more chitter-chatter about California politics. Um, so uh, uh, you, you, you feel, uh, Anthony, rested, ready for the year at hand? I'm, I'm so excited I could spit. <laughs> Don't spit into the microphone directly because that's not really conducive to, uh, to, to podcast listening. But Anthony's excited. Uh, I am too. Let's, uh, let's dive right in. So had we done a podcast earlier than this, we could have talked about um, – Lots of broad things to look at for the year, and we may do that over the, you know, maybe the next couple of times we do these, or uh, legislation. We've got to talk about campaign season at some point, but lucky us, we get to talk about Governor Brown's state budget this time. And, and actually, um, had, the, had the budget gone down as we expected, uh, neither Anthony nor I thought we could do the podcast on Friday because we thought we'd be filing budget stories. Hey, lucky us, the the leaky world of the Capitol, right? Lucky you, podcast listener. Lucky you. <laughs> I, I will say this. Uh, Why is it every time we talk it's, it has to do with some sort of recent harried speed reading of a long bureaucratic document? It seems like yeah. that's the norm now. 250-plus pages of the of the budget summary. And uh, the, uh, as I said, the, the leaky world of the state house. This is uh, the second time in, uh, what, four years that Brown's budget has come out earlier than expected? Yeah, that, that's, that's my count, which is ironic um, given, so, given, you know, um, that all the years of Schwarzenegger and the, and the major media operation that this never happened. And, and Brown, who runs a, I, I think, argue, uh, well, I don't know if it's arguable or not, a, a, kind of a, a tighter ship and a more restricted inner circle that this budget finds its way out. I, I find that dynamic kind of interesting. Well, I, I will say one observation about that process, not that, that people listening to this podcast want us to talk about all of this uh, way that we do our jobs and the way the Capitol operates. But, you know, I, I was having a discussion here at News 10 this morning about the governor's state of the state, which is on January 22nd. And I, and, and, and I do think it is important to note that you know, in the old days, as I feel like I can say, like some um, rapidly aging man. Uh, but in the old days, we had the state of the state speech before the budget. And that allowed governors, first of all, there was a, you know, it was always a game about what was the governor going to talk about. But it also gave governors this platform to introduce these particular proposals, ideas, something that I think then led the budget to be a, a different kind of public uh, pronouncement. Now, Brown has moved these state of the state speeches, you know, much later into the game than the budget, and they've they're very pro forma. I mean, they're just very much a um, uh, the governor's musings for twenty minutes in the floor of the assembly. They're not um, they're not used as platforms for some kind of um, agenda, right? I mean, and so well, I, we've I think that's the way right. That we have to cover it. I mean, I think that's right, but I also think, arguably, in that time, uh, there hasn't been much of an agenda. I mean, the agenda has been fix yeah, it. Yeah. And I yep. think that um, this this document, this budget, um, is sort of 
you know, the beginning of the pivot into, okay, you know, now that we've fixed it or now that we're not bleeding, now how do we, now what? And, um, but, but it's still, I think it's a cautious election year document um, that doesn't have a lot of sweeping proposals. And whether that, whether that is the plan for the next four years for this governor, that's just how he is, it's going to be stable, or whether he's saving this till after uh, re-election, you know, in November, I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. But I think this budget is notable in part because there's not a whole lot in it in terms of big, major, new proposals. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about. So when we look at this budget document, which, you know, in the macro sense and numbers that I don't, I don't think the numbers always really tell much of that story, but we in the press like to report them. $155 billion uh, state spending plan, about $107 billion out of the general fund, which is a, um, a, a new high mark, watermark for uh, spending out of the general fund. But when you look at it, I, I, I had the same feeling you did, and I was trying to kind of come up with some, um, some image. And, and, what I, and it feels as though when you, aside from the governor's plan to, uh, to sock away money in the reserve fund, and aside from his idea to make a big new hit in his wall of debt, his wall of debt, of that short-term budgetary debt, uh, notably uh, money to schools, and we can talk about that maybe in a moment, uh, the, the full paying down of those deferrals from the, from the budget years, from the deficit years, rather. The rest of the document almost feels like the equivalent of, um, uh, of an airplane uh, 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 jettisoning fuel that it or something. I mean, like he sprinkles everything out, you know, the rest of this $6 billion surplus. Uh, it's right. You're, you're hard pressed to find any major pronouncement. Yes, high speed rail. Yes, money to Medi-Cal. But um, there is there, there's no bit right. There's no sweetener, as you called it. There's everything else just seems to be sprinkled, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I, and I think that, um, I mean, look, you can argue whether this is just good election year politics, right? Sort of, or whether this just is a, a, an accurate reflection of Brown and who he is, that um, this is about stability. This is not about um, rebuilding uh, state government. This is about locking in at a level that will be sustainable in the years ahead and ensuring that this current level uh, is maintainable and sustainable going forward. I, I think that's... Uh, what Brown has talked about, I think this this budget reflects that. It's not that there's not new money because there there is, but that it's also laying the foundation for you know a meaningful rainy day fund. I mean, we we have a rainy day fund. I thought one of the interesting side notes in this budget was sort of a tacit admission that Prop 58 was basically a phony. But I, I don't know if we get into that or not. Um, but you know, but this is, and I think that a lot of the analysis coming out of the budget is that. Uh, you know, we wrote it in, in our story in the L.A. Times was, look, this is kind of setting the tone for what we can expect to hear for Brown uh, through re-election. That, uh, you know, and, and it's not that different. Uh, it's, it's a slightly modified theme that he ran from what he ran on in 2010, where the budget is still at the center, that the, the notion of, of uh, austerity or, if not austerity, then at least responsible, responsibility when it comes to, to state spending, um, and and that it's not about broad new initiatives. I mean, there are things in there, right? There's the high-speed rail and water. Those are sort of the the major uh, projects that he's attached himself to. But um, 
but that the rest is is really sort of locking in at a at a level of service that's going to be sustainable after he's gone. Let's talk about a couple of those particular proposals in a second, but I want to I want to play a clip uh, here of the governor from his Thursday press conference in, in this macro sense of how he wants to approach the budget, and I think this came down to where he was talked about uh, why it didn't include uh, other proposals, in particular this idea of transitional kindergarten the Democrats wanted. But I think it's a short bit here, but I think it's instructive. I certainly will listen to legislative leaders and members as they make their proposals. But again, uh, wisdom and prudence is the order of the day. So Jerry Brown's watchword is prudence. Of course, as I said in my newsroom, very few people use the word prudence in, in modern world, but uh, the, the erudite governor and harkens back to a different time. What, you want to use the Beatles reference? Uh, no, you just did. There you go. You want me, you want me to cue the music? Know. Can that be our <laughs> outro? No, we don't have the licensing <laughs> for that. Huh? We, do, we don't. We don't have the budget. Uh, we'll talk about that sometime. Um, uh, but so this notion of prudence, and the reason I come back to that is because a moment ago you were talking about austerity. And a lot of what I wrote on Thursday um, uh, did some for TV as well. And I think there is a there is somewhat of a freedom of having the document leaked on Wednesday, where we could do some more of just the numbers on Wednesday, and we gave us an ability to read kinda it to, to kind of to, yeah, to not be speed reading while you're listening to the governor. And yeah, I don't know. I was from a report. Yeah, yeah but to, so so be able to be able to listen to his message more than try to be obsessed with right. the numbers right. on Thursday. And that notion of prudence versus austerity, I think, is the challenge of 2014, because when there was no money, I think it's a lot, you know, I mean, that's, a, that's tough. It's tough to tell people we don't have money, we got to cut programs. But when you're sitting on money and everybody wants it, I, I, think, I think this could be the hardest budget debate of all, at least in terms of that political push and pull. I mean, it's one thing to say we want to raise taxes and save this program or save that program. Now the governor is essentially saying, hey, I got a I got a jar of candy over here, folks, but I'm only going to give you one piece. Yeah. And, and I think that um, that's another place where the election comes in handy, where he can look to Democrats and say, look, I'm not going to do any of this before an election. Right. I'm just I mean, he can make a political case to them in private uh, about a, a reason to hold the line for one more year at least. I mean, not that the floodgates would necessarily open in 2015, although who knows, right? But um, but, I, but I, I do think that this is, and, and sort of the circular nature of these things, um, I mean, remember back in 1978. Remember 1978, John? I know, do. I was as, 10. As we all do. I was 10. Sorry, podcast and listeners. I, but, and, and, and Anthony and was, was younger. And I was four. I was four. So. <laughs> younger, um, younger. But... Um, but look, I mean, Prop 13 grew out of a, a voter revolt that was a part of the anger that motivated right. Prop right. 13 was the fact that Jerry Brown had amassed a $5 billion surplus in a $25 billion general fund budget. So, you know, uh, without a tax, without a tax refund. And so there's a danger of surplus, too. I mean, there's a, and and I think that Brown, as he did with Prop 30 and making the case for Prop 30 and sort of going into that, remember the, the road shows in 2011, it was this sort of budget seminar. And I think that um, we're going to see a lot of that over the next few months here, about this notion of capital gains volatility and, um, and the, the reason why, and the fact that California revenues, you know, spike and they dip. And, and you know, during Schwarzenegger, there was an effort to try to make some changes on the revenue collection side, 
what Brown has done is even make it more volatile. Right? But he's embraced this idea that was first put forward, that I saw first put forward by the speaker, at least, I think. It's, it's fair to give the speaker credit for this one, that rather than worry about the volatility on the revenue side, let's create a, a mechanism that even smooths out the spending and ends the volatile spending um, you know, on the spending side so, so that you can still have a progressive tax structure without sort of the peaks and valleys on the roller coaster, uh, roller coaster budgets. And, and so that's going to take some education. That's going to take some work. And I, I think that um, that will, I think we're going to see the governor sort of slipping back into, you know, state campaign or not into a state finance seminar mode here for the next few months. That's that's kind of my guess. Well, let's stay on that topic because that's the that's the proposal about a rainy day fund for a moment. And then and then we can talk about some spending. But since we're already there in our chit chat, let's let's stay there because I, I I think this is fascinating. So um, for those who who know what we're talking about, but just kind of fill in the gaps a little bit. Um, as as Anthony mentioned a little while ago, right? We have we actually have a rainy day fund. Uh, whether it actually was effective is another story from 2004, Prop 58, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the budget stabilization account. However, money had not been put into that account since 2007 until the governor's pronouncement here that he intends to put money in it this year, $1.6 billion. I'm not quite sure the mechanics here, and I don't want to get stuck in it, but uh, it seems as though the governor may be able to just make that decision on his own because he's the one who has to suspend the transfer. The transfer would be automatic absent a suspension, and they've been suspending it all those years, right? So I think he can almost do that on his own, can he? I think so, but then yep. then, then it's building a wall around that money. Yeah. So, but, so I, I don't know the mechanics of that either. Someone, some smart podcast listener will immediately tweet please, me back. and Jim Stafford, please, please wrap, do. Wrap us over the knuckles. Um, make, make it an email and uh, CC me on it, will you? <laughs> but so it's a 1.6 billion dollar number. But as you've said, as we've talked about, that rainy day fund seems inadequate for a lot of reasons. Um, and the last few years seem to have proved it. Although to be fair, the recession of 2008, 9, and 10 was uh, unlike anything we had seen, at least in terms of its of its um, of its uh, uh, broad reach and the fact that it's a slow recovery. This is not an economics podcast, but um, so we have a new rainy day proposal, um, new, we have a rainy day proposal that's on the November ballot that actually was crafted in 2010, was supposed to be on the ballot in 2012, was delayed until 2014, uh, ACA 4, Assembly Constitutional Amendment 4, uh, crafted during the depth of the recession, uh, fight. And, 09, and, right? Was that put on 09 or no? Uh, t- 2010 was the okay. bill, but they started working on okay. it back then, yes. We, we, uh, how soon we forget. But the key thing to me in that one is, is that it was hotly contested for a long time, but it was, uh, its crafting was by necessity to get a two-thirds vote, including Republican buy-in. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger's right. governor. Right. It took Republicans back then to approve a budget deal. And, of course, it takes two-thirds to get a, a measure on the ballot. So it was a much differently crafted thing. Democrats did it uh, even though they did not want to do it. I think a lot of them felt under duress, not all, but some of them, that they had right. to come up with something. It has this very complex uh, linear regression formula in it about how you measure revenues. Uh, it's a 20-year uh, look at revenues. Uh, there was another version that was 10 years. This one supposedly is better. Again, not trying to have a linear regression podcast. But it was a very difficult um, proposal to craft 
everyone says they want something new, but crafting something ain't going to be easy. Well, every Democrat says they want something new. Right, that's true. Every Democrat says they want something new. Republicans, I think, would like something more strong, but they know they're not going to get that, and so they would love ACA4. And I think at the end of the day, if if you're Jerry Brown, you almost can use the existence of this cap that they don't like as a as a, oh, as a bit of a, a, a stick there, like, hey, you got to come to my way of thinking yeah. or the voters. And we know by the polling. He said, he said that in the press conference. He, right. he, he alluded to that in the press conference. And you look at the polling over the last few years, and people, of course, they're generically asked something about a spending cap or a reserve fund. It polls through the roof. And so that measure starts very popular. Now, not to say that uh, powerful interests on the left, whether it's organized labor or someone else, could knock it down and say it would be detrimental to schools, it would be detrimental to this or that. But um, this is going to be a very, very uh, interesting and I think difficult fight here because at the end of the day, there are a lot of interest groups who publicly will say, yes, we don't like this revenue volatility, privately have thrived on it, and their programs have thrived on it. Right. Well, and and I think, you know, politically, again, this this rainy day fund becomes a way for Brown to really position himself towards the center, right? Even if it is, if it's in opposition to some of these sort of core Democratic constituencies that you're talking about. Right. That, that may help him in an, right. in an election environment. And so it allows him to, to you know, occupy the space in the political center. And, so, and look, everyone involved in this dance knows their role, right? I mean, this is, this is uh, uh, there's no secret about how this is going to go down and how it's going to play and, and, and how it's supposed to work. I mean, whether or not it actually does is sort of at the whims of, uh, of other external forces, perhaps. But, I, but, but that's the plan. I mean, that's the plan. The plan is for CTA probably not to love whatever comes out of the legislature. But keep in mind that whatever it is will have to be voted on by two-thirds of the legislature. And so, so yes, there's a motivation to move ACA4 out of the way, right? Absolutely. But, um, um, but it's still going to have to get legislative approval. Well, and, and based on what you just said, just kind of struck me. Uh, one of the early um, rumbles about this 250-page document, because it really only lays out an outline of kind of what the governor's priorities would be about a a new rainy day fund. But it mentions a modification to the way money goes to schools via Prop 98. And it it tries to sell it as though this volatility is bad for schools. It's not been predictable for educators and how to, you know, help our children. But it is a bit of a shot across the bow, is it not, to education advocates who say, hey, um, you know, I might want to do this unless you're willing to come my way of thinking about something. So this is a, you know, I think if you step back and look at it that way, it's, it's, it's a pretty shrewd move by the governor to, to invoke the uh, Prop 98 element of, uh, of uh, spending cap, rainy day reserve, whatever we call it. And no one will call it a spending cap, by the way, on the left, because, you know, that sets off no. the entire fireworks of the, of the more liberal constituency in California. Well, well, that's the problem with, AC, that's the problem, the problem with ACA4, as many Democrats view that as a de facto spending cap. So. Right. So, so let's talk about high-speed rail quickly, um, uh, something we all heard about uh, for a few weeks there. Uh, governor uh, is, wants to take uh, a quarter of a billion dollars out of the ca- uh, auction proceeds from cap-and-trade pollution credits, uh, which uh, the, the auction process in a story I did at the end of the year, I looked back and found, 
much more successful than at the beginning of those auctions they thought it was going to be. I mean, there seems to be a market for people buying a credit, which is good for uh, polluting one ton of carbon into the atmosphere. Um, that market seems to have been fairly strong. Did this strong. podcast have to buy that, or is this this <laughs> uh, this hot air is not uh, uh, affecting our climate? We are containing all of our carbon dioxide and hopefully not carbon methane <laughs> into small carbon places when we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow, that was too far out. Um, that but so so on. the governor's taken a quarter of a billion dollars, proposes to rather. Uh, and uses it to, my words, not his words, prop up high-speed rail. And I effectively kind of said that to him in the press conference on Thursday. This high-speed rail has uh, had a rough patch in 2013 with money. Uh, a Sacramento judge said you can't sell the voter-approved bonds until the business plan is reworked. Congress has continued to thumb its nose at the idea of more money, Republicans in Congress, which, of course, are controlling the House. Um, and now, just on Friday, uh, even if it's just symbolism, uh, Jeff Gorell, Republican assemblyman from uh, from the south coast of California, who's running for Congress, it appears, uh, filed a ballot measure to repeal high-speed rail and wants to say right. that it would help us fund schools. There, There's a lot of grumbling about the way high-speed rail has gone, not, not necessarily the goal among some of those on the left, but even the way the process has gone. The governor wants to take money out of cap and trade that a lot of environmentalists think should go to other greenhouse gas uh, reduction measures and right. use it for high-speed rail. And, you know, the governor has got to make this case that it, too, is a good thing for climate change to have a bullet train. Of course, it's a long-term fix. And the governor has often said, and this is one of the places I think his rhetoric is he's going to have to resolve somewhere. The governor has often said, we don't have time to wait. And yet he wants yeah, well, to put it yeah. on a train, which its impact on climate change is years away versus something more immediate of some of these greenhouse gas reduction programs. Well, and, and you know, the, I'm sure he would argue the rest of the money, in fact, the majority of the money does go to things other than high-speed rail, right? right? I mean, there's $200 million for, for uh, you know, clean vehicles and, right. and, you know, wetlands restoration, which I thought was interesting to reduce carbon through wetlands restoration. There's all kinds of stuff in there. Um, what I politically, what I think is interesting is Brown is once again going to ask the legislature to put up votes, members of the legislature to put up votes yeah. on high-speed rail. Yeah. Um, and 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 it seems like since the last time we've done this, about a year and a half ago, with the bonds, you know, this is not a program that's gotten any more popular. And uh, you had some, and and you and because of the source of this funding, in addition to some of the concerns you had from Democrats, remember there were Democrats at the time. That was a tough vote in the Senate. Uh, to get the bond approval, and that was just a majority vote. And uh, this time, you have some additional opposition. You've already seen some environmentalists, as you mentioned, uh, people like Richard Bloom, a, a assemblyman from from Santa Monica, sort of put down a marker and say he's concerned about using these funds for high-speed rail. And so, I, it, it's going to be interesting to see as because you know the, on that particular piece of the budget, the, the high-speed rail trailer bill piece, how the uh, 41 and, and 21 vote. Majorities are, are fashioned if indeed it survives that long. So, well, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. And I, and I just quickly want to say that one of the things when, when, uh, when the environmental community learned of this a few weeks ago, um, and I think a lot of us in the press corps heard it, but one of the observations that was made to me by someone active in the environmental lobbying community was there is still a lot of grumbling uh, about the way cap-and-trade works in California. There's a lot of grumbling right. about the fact that large industries, um, large companies, were given a lot of these carbon credits for free. 
And so, you know, you can you can see a scenario here where people in the environmental community say, well, you got to give us something here. You're going to you know, there's, if you want to take the money, what else can you do to make the program the, the program work better? I, and again, we don't want to get too far down into that right now. But I think putting it on the table raises a lot of questions, the, the macro political fight, the smaller political fights and then the messaging on high speed rail. I mean, you know, this is a big year for the project. It. We still think it's yeah. going to break ground. It never did in 2013. We think we it's going to happen in 2014. Yeah, yeah um, they, they awarded the first construction project for the first 27, 29 miles in the Central Valley. Uh, the governor's, you know, messaging, I think, is a little challenging. In a piece I wrote for the web on Thursday night, I mean, you know, his answer to me in the press conference when I asked him about it was he invoked, again, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Transcontinental Railroad. Yeah. But those were programs that, like, uh, were bottlenecks to progress and that they, they had, a they had a I think, a much more, if you read history, a much more palpable need. High-speed rail is a more of a desire, a, a, a goal, and, you know, I think it's not the quite the right sell, but... A man who we think is running for re-election, who has all these other issues, uh, how high-speed rail fits into it, I, you know, politically, I don't know. I guess and it's, it's and, and it's antithetical in some. I mean, he has a you know justification for it, right, on the climate change issue and progress and invest while you're, st- you know, but it is sort of, uh, you know, some would say contradictory, perhaps, you know, or just something that needs to be reconciled is how you make this this call for prudence while still having this. Uh, you know, I don't know, some, some might call quixotic desire to blow a hole through the Tehachapis and run a, run a train through it. So, uh, you know, uh, that's a him problem. That's not an us problem, right? We just, we just write about it. <laughs> right. We're just in the, uh, the cheap seats throwing uh, spitballs. That's right. So, so a couple he missed of the tag. He missed yeah. the tag. A couple of, couple of other things, and you tell me if there's anything else to stand. I mean, we're not going to go through the whole document here in this podcast. Uh, um, but one other thing I wanted to flag, uh, again, I think it's an open question. The governor, you know, makes an impassioned case about prudence, but I think it's an open question, and that is the expansion of Medi-Cal in California. governor has got about, you know, $400 million in general fund for this expansion under the Affordable Care Act. The feds are picking up, obviously, part of the cost of putting more people into the, um, the program for mainly low-income Californians. But at the same time, the governor is not funding some of the things that um, Medi-Cal advocates say they need, most notably this issue of how much doctors are paid, reimbursed, to take Medi-Cal patients. And that was a problem under Medi-Cal uh, with a smaller population. Now you're growing Medi-Cal by about a million people, and yes, it's expensive to raise those reimbursement rates, but California is the lowest in the country. You hear it all the time. And I wonder if that's not one of those that that has to be maybe revisited. Of course, anytime the governor cracks open any of this, it seems like in 2014, he's vulnerable to um, uh, opinion writers around the state saying, oh, well, what happened to your prudence? What happened to your you know caution? But, you know, that was one that stood out to me. I mean, the governor has been such a passionate advocate of the Affordable Care Act and uh, has just fully embraced it, implementing it in California. And a lot of people who are very close to this would say that is a that is a real flaw in California's plan. If you don't have enough doctors to take these patients, you're overloading a system that can't take it. So that's one that I flagged. I mean, and, any, and, any and, thoughts and, or and other that, ones? And, well, and, and that, that provider rate issue. And what's interesting about that is that there's been some bipartisan interest in boosting those provider rates. And so, right. you know, how that all plays out uh, will be interesting. Off, uh, offhand, no, I mean, the water, you know, 
one thing that wasn't talked talked about was the water bond and what right. happens with the water bond. And there's some money for water projects in there, and you know, there's these sort of twin uh, parallel tracks going on in water world. One involving the the tunnels, uh, and then the other with the bond. And, and so right now, there's a bond on the ballot. Um, you know, legislators are trying to rework a different bond for the same ballot, and uh, you know, trying to decipher the governor. Uh, from the uh, from his comments at the press conference, I mean, if I had to put money down on what his thinking is, it's that he would rather move it off this ballot. And we'll we'll see. That's going to be another big uh, bipartisan or trans-regional fight that I think um, you know is going to take up some of our podcast time here in the months ahead. And I'm glad you mentioned water before we close because. Um you know, you only have to look up at the skies and look down at the rivers and the lakes and the reservoirs to know that we are facing a potential serious drought in California in 2014. You know, the governor hasn't made the formal declaration, though he talked about on Thursday he's working on, and clearly everybody knows it is. It is of great concern everywhere. That first snowpack measurement in the Sierra almost came up dry. And, And I tell you, you know, when you look at things that could you know, the real potential um, uh, uh, game changers, outliers, things that could, you know, overturn the apple cart every, come on, let's pull out all the metaphors, John. Um, but the, the, the notion of a huge water war in California, uh, you know, massive conservation issues or rationing, north, south, agriculture, urban, the last drought was during, you know, big drought of 76, 77, was in Jerry Brown's time before. Um, now there are all of these dynamics going around, and it's in an election year. It, it, I think it's really an interesting one to watch because it's one of those things that people can get, can start to understand when they, uh, if, should they get all these massive decisions made about conserving water. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it, it's one of the ones really to spend a lot of time watching this year. Yeah. So it's it's we'll the, uh, the 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 lawn mowing vote that he'll have to worry about. The suburban vote. Ah. Yeah. Yep. Well, yeah. I, I I will um I, I will try to keep my watering to a minimum here in Sacramento. Uh, you do that. People. You do that. I'm going to come <laughs> I, you know, dig I, up your front yard and cover it with California poppies. Uh, and with that, that is uh, our first uh, Capital Connection podcast of 2014. Hope you have a great year. All of this notwithstanding. Uh, That's Anthony York from the LA Times. I'm John Myers from News 10. We'll see you next time.